It's time, it's time for the Money Mitch Effect. I'm your host, Mitch Michaels. Thank you for listening to the sports podcast. I appreciate you, as always. Today's show is going to touch on a couple different sports. It's going to be a good one. First up, I'm going to be talking to Kent Brown, one of my good friends. He hosts two sports podcasts, does some work at the NFL, a sports aficionado, some play-by-play work as well. We're going to break down March Madness, the first weekend of the tournament, and then look ahead at the Sweet 16. You're not going to want to miss that. And following that, I'm going to talk to Eric Roberts, a frequent guest of the show, my resident puck expert. We're going to talk about the final push of the regular season. It's not looking too good for the Kings. The MVP race, the scoring race, is heating up. Eric's going to break all that down and more. It's the Money Mitch Effect. Let's start the show. All right, now joining us on the Money Mitch Effect, special guest today. He's an LA resident from the eastern part of the country. He's done some work for NFL Network, Ventura County Star, play-by-play, as well as podcast host for Gridiron Wake Up Call and the College Football Experience. Kent Brown, thanks for joining the show, and I hope I got all that right. Yeah, that's all accurate, and you know what? Uh, the West Coast has been good to me, but I'm uh, getting ready to head soon to the east coast and start some work out there so yeah it'll be a lot of fun and man it's march it's madness i'm ready to go i know you're a college sports guy football is your forte but you also pay a a lot of attention to basketball and kent we every year we talk about different storylines i feel like some years we have to manufacture some march madness storylines this has been a very very deep deep tournament in that regard has there been anything you, that you've kept your eye on from how this tournament has progressed if there's one storyline out there that you're really paying attention to well you know one thing i kind of like and look in the first round i pretty much had most of the games right my alma mater miami did not show up against michigan state you and i were watching that together mm-hmm. with some other friends i wish they would have won but most of the first round was chalk you know higher seeds favorites and what happens when those teams win it sets up for a great round of 32 a great round of 16 onto the elite eight and i like that look we all want to talk about the cinderellas and we all want to talk about how much we like the upsets but when you're seeing a 12 seed against a 13 seed it doesn't do us that much Mm -hmm. it's usually not a good game so i thought the first round being pretty much the higher seeds winning set up a really good round of 32, and I was, you know, look at Saturday, look at Sunday. Those were some great teams out there, some highly competitive matchups. Outside of basically Kansas and, let's say, Florida over Virginia and Xavier, to a lesser extent, against Florida State, the rest of those 13 matchups on Saturday and Sunday were really good competitive games. They were, and and I'm with you in the sense that I'd rather have my upsets, although they're not maybe true upsets, I'd rather have more unpredictability in the round of 32, in the Sweet 16, because as you said, they're all good teams at that point. And, and Cinderella is nice, and it's good to see the, the improbable win, but we do like good basketball, and we definitely saw that. I want to start with that East region, Kent, because we saw the defending national champs, Villanova, go out to Wisconsin. Number eight seed, Wisconsin, beat Villanova 65-62. And I'll start with this, Kent. They were probably, everybody expected Wisconsin to play well, given how poor they were seeded in this tournament. This might be the best eight seed I've ever seen, and that was an ugly basketball game. Typical Wisconsin, they won. I'm not as shocked at this upset, if that makes sense. Right. There were very few things that would have transpired this weekend that would have been shocking. And this was a surprise, 
There's no way around that. I thought Villanova would win. When they were up seven with like seven minutes left, I thought they would probably separate and win by a few scores. But you have to think about who Wisconsin is. You just mentioned the score of that game. In round one, they were up in the 80s. That's not really a Wisconsin game. When they're in the 60s or the high 50s, that's where they want to play. And Villanova's a guard-oriented team. They very rarely have a bunch of bigs. So when you look at a guy like Nigel Hayes, he's able to take advantage of that. And most of the season, Nigel Hayes has been up and down. But if you watched him against Villanova, every time when they needed him to make a bucket, he did. When they needed him to defend the post, he stepped up. And this was very much a Wisconsin type of game. And look, I think if they played a best of seven, I think Villanova wins. Mm -hmm. But when you're one and done, and when you're in a position where you can have guys like Bronson Koenig and Nigel Hayes, those guys have been winners. They were playing in the national championship game two years ago, knocked off the undefeated Kentucky team. Last year went to the Big Ten championship with a lot of momentum. And then you look at Villanova. They're a good team. But if they're not hitting their outside shots, they generally won't score enough to probably beat a good defensive team. So it surprised me, but I'm with you. It didn't shock me necessarily, but this was the type of game Wisconsin wanted to get into. And that's a game they want to go forward against Florida, against either South Carolina or Baylor, all the way to Phoenix in the Final Four. They want to play a game that's in the 60s where they can have ball control, late shot clock possessions, look for that outside jumper, and then get it in the haze and let him dictate that final few mm-hmm. seconds of a shot clock, and they're comfortable with that. So, yeah, if Wisconsin's playing its game, they could be a Final Four team, but if you can get them high-tempo 70s or 80s, they're probably not going to beat you. So you mentioned Nigel Hayes, Kent being up and down, kind of uneven. This whole Wisconsin team was that way. They finished second in the Big Ten, made the Big Ten title game, but they were awful for most of February. And then here we are again, fourth straight Sweet 16, longest active street in the country. Do you think it's coaching? Do you think it's just the players? I mean, they've lost some talent. Nigel Hayes and Koenig are, are beasts. They're, they're great leaders. But what is it about this program now, again, in the Sweet 16? You know what it might be the last few years? Being underseeded. They were in the 7-10 game mm, yeah. in 2016. They were in the 8-9 game in 2017 this past year. They probably should have been like a five or six in both years. And because of that, it's a bit unfortunate that they're able to beat really good teams and knock them out of contention. So overall, I think that Wisconsin, they're the type of team that you don't want to play in general. But when they're underseeded, like this year, they were probably a fringe top 25 team, which just based on that alone, you would think would put you as a five or six seed. That would have been fine. Instead, they became an eight seed. Villanova, the top one seed, had to play them. And I'm sorry, if you look at the other eight seeds, let's just look at Northwestern, the other Big Ten team that created some noise this weekend. Are you telling me that Villanova wouldn't have rather played Northwestern? They would have taken that in a second. And that Northwestern team was fine. But Wisconsin is a much better basketball team that should have been seeded higher. So I generally think overall the committee does a good job. But when they're going to seed a team at eight when they should be a six, maybe a five, all of a sudden you're an eight seed, you're going to go in against that one seed, and you kind of feel like it's a coin flip game in your mind. And if you're Villanova, you would much rather have a team that should be 32nd or 36th ranked based on numbers instead of a team that's like a top 20, top 25 team. So Wisconsin, they've taken advantage of their seeding. And again, if you can get teams to play your tempo in March, you're going to be in a lot of ball games. 
and that's why Wisconsin does very well. If you look at most of their scores over the last four or five years, there's not a lot of games that are up in the high 70s to mid 80s. Most right. of those games are in the 60s or 50s, and that's where they want to be. And they've lost some heartbreakers, too. I think that's part uh, understanding that when they get to the Sweet 16 or the finals or wherever they get, they're not getting blown out. They're in just about every game they play. I think poise has a factor. Hayes' take for the game-winning bucket was great, but I thought even even something as little as doubling on the missed free throw to prevent the uh, the chance for Villanova to tie was great. I, I do want to get back to Villanova before we move on, Kent. We're now going to go on a decade without a team repeating and take nothing away from what Villanova did last year. But this is kind of who they've been the last couple of years for the better part of this decade, the team that comes in as a high seed and gets bounced early. Do you think last year was just a blip in the radar, or is this program more or less regressing to the mean here? I would say last year was probably slightly a blip in the radar in that I think a lot of us did not predict them to do what they did last year. And if you look at it, I would even start at the Sweet 16, my alma mater, Miami. They blew out Miami. Then they played Kansas. They blew them out. Played Oklahoma in the Final Four, blew them out. And then had that competitive game where they won on the last shot against Carolina. That was kind of a difference of what they've done for so many of these years. In 2009, me being a Pittsburgh native, I was rooting for Pitt in the Elite Eight. They went up against fellow Big East competitor Villanova. And Scotty Reynolds had that runner to win the game at the buzzer. Mm Those are really their only two years they've over-succeeded over in March. They got bounced by NC State a couple years ago. They lost to St. Mary's a few years back before that. This year they fall in the first weekend to a Wisconsin team. So I think overall, look, if you win a national championship and you're consistently in the top 25 every year, you're in the upper echelon of your conference, you're in a city where you're in Philadelphia, you're near New York, you can bring in a lot of recruits. Jay Wright and Villanova are just fine. But yes, I think last year in 2016 was kind of, I would say, in a way, not an outlier, but certainly more towards an outlier than it was the average or the mean of what Villanova's done over the past decade. But look, it's tough. You get the march, it's a tough battle. That's why somebody like Coach K and Duke, I know they lost in the round of 32 to South Carolina, but how many times he's made 12 Final Fours, he's won five national mm-hmm. championships. Roy Williams at Kansas and now North Carolina the same way. You had Bill Self going from Tulsa to Illinois to Kansas. Some coaches are able to do it. Others aren't. When you're in a one-and-done scenario, it's a tough battle. You have to bring your team. You have to get them up for each game. And you have to tell them, this is do or die. I love what Jay Billis says. And look, Jay Billis is probably one of the best, if not the best college basketball analyst there is. And he says, you have to treat the tournament Like, it's three separate four-team tournaments. If you win the first one, you regroup, you go to the next one. If you win that second one, you regroup and you go to the Final Four. That's the way you have to look at it. Because if you start looking at the big picture and you see all 64 teams or all 68 teams, that's overwhelming. But if you can look at it and say, if you're Villanova, we beat Mount St. Mary's and we beat either Wisconsin or the ninth seed, we're on. That's where you want to be. What you don't want to be looking is ahead. You don't want to be looking at who else is in your bracket because you have to treat the tournament like it's your first and second round, then you're on to your regionals, then you're on to your final four. But those are three separate four-team tournaments. And if you can win all of those, you win the national title. Some coaches do a better job than others. I think Jay Wright hasn't done a good job under that, but last year his team did. And if you win a national title – 
you're pretty good. I mean, as good as Jim Beheim is, he's only won one. Mm-hmm. You know, as good as Lute Olson was, he won one. Uh, as good as John Calipari's been, he's won one. It's not that easy to win multiple NCAA tournaments. And so you have to really bring your A game all three weekends to get that eventual national championship. Right, and it also is the luck of the draw. I mean, I, I don't remember off the top of my head everybody Villanova went through last year, but Wisconsin as an eight seed is pretty tough. It's a game that, as you said, I'm inclined to agree they'd win a best of seven series, but it is just one game. So Villanova is out, Wisconsin's on. Some more housekeeping in the East region before we move on here on the Money Mitch Effect with Kent Brown talking NCAA tournament. Florida, Virginia, well, they proved that not everything has to be good this weekend. They, they gave us the clunker that we were all waiting. And we're not going to get into too much betting uh, on this episode of the show, Kent, but I just want to throw out a metaphorical out there that friends should never let friends take over when Virginia's involved. That, that should just never happen. I think I might need an intervention if I ever make that mistake again. <laughs> yeah, I remember telling you, by the way, the two bets I told you heading into this weekend, I said take Xavier on Saturday against Florida State Did that. and take USC on Sunday against Baylor. And so yeah. those were kind of the two. I don't know what you did with those. I hope you won them. But those were two I looked at, and I really felt very good about Xavier. But even USC, to a lesser extent, I thought, you know what, you can get some pretty good odds there at the six and a half or seven. So, But, yeah, when it comes to Virginia over-unders, I, yeah. I would generally lean towards just leaving that alone because, look, if you look at the history of teams that were, you know, five seeds or higher, the only teams that have scored less than 40 under that scenario are Tony Bennett in Virginia this year and then Dick Bennett, who's his father in Wisconsin, back when yeah. they lost to Southwest Missouri State. And scored 37 points. So yeah, and overall, the system they play, they can win a 48-45 yeah. to 45 game, but that's not one you really want to feel good putting that over on. And I don't know if you saw the actual game, but they were throwing shots off the side of the backboard. I mean, it was a it was a low 39. It, it wasn't anything special. It was a tough game to watch. Florida's moving on. They play good D, but... I was astounded by how poor Virginia played in this game when it mattered most on offense. But I do want to switch to SC. That line actually dropped down to four and a half, and they covered by the skin of their teeth. Baylor won that game 82-78. to Baylor in the Sweet 16, and we were, I mean, I for one, I know a lot of people in the general public were kind of just putting Baylor down, but I have to give them credit for all the naysayers out there. They got the job done. They won that first four-game tournament. Yeah, it's fascinating that Baylor's now a favorite to get to the Elite Eight, if you think about it. Look, they're very Jekyll and Hyde. I think Baylor's the type of team, they're athletic. You know, at times they can really do well against top-tier competition. You know, ask Kansas, ask West Virginia, ask Iowa State. They compete against those teams. But where Baylor struggles usually is against those lower-end teams. I figured the first game against New Mexico State, they would be fine, and they were. But in the second game against USC... I expected SC to either win that game or at least make it competitive. I didn't even know it dropped all the way down to four and a half, so I guess that last second shot did a lot of people well. But South Carolina, all of a sudden, you look at Thornwell and you look at that team, they're able to score, they have athletic bigs, they're very good in the mid-range game. And so Scott Drew and Baylor, I think the one thing that if you're Baylor this week, you have to focus on is get the ball out of Thornwell's hands. Put the ball in other guys' hands and see if they can get 15, 12, 17 points. Because some teams and some people believe you let the high scorer get his and you make sure no one else gets theirs. I don't necessarily think that works out well if it's South Carolina. 
because unlike a lot of teams, especially elite teams in the country, top 10 teams, they're fine with that because they have four or five other guys that they can hope would get you 12, 15, 17 a game. Mm-hmm. South Carolina's not like that. So I really feel like if you're Baylor, you want to be able to make other players force the issue, see if they can score. But overall, I thought it was a very impressive effort by Baylor to close that game out and beat SC, but it was a more impressive effort by South Carolina. And Frank Martin's a guy, I don't know if I'd want to play for him. It's <laughs> it tough. Seems like he's the type of guy who uh, certainly will put the pressure on his team. Maybe that team is so loose in actual competition because I guarantee the practices are hell. Frank Martin <laughs> oh, yeah. is a guy that's been around a while. He was a Bob Huggins assistant for a long time. He was a former coach in the Miami area who had kind of a sketchy past with guys like Steve Blake and Udonis Haslam at Miami Senior High School back in the day. But he's a great recruiter. He's a great developer of talent. And if you can buy into a system, his guys play hard. So if he puts his 11th or 12th guy out there, Mitch, they're going to play hard. And Baylor... I think that's kind of a toss-up game, and so I'm not sure at this moment on Monday night who I'll pick to win that, but I'll say right now, the fact that that line opened up, I think, at three or three and a half, that sounds about right. I think South Carolina certainly should be an underdog, but I wouldn't feel too good about picking Baylor and thinking that they're a guarantee to make the Elite Eight. I look at Baylor, too. I mean, SC was a tough team. You know, they, they kept that streak alive of winning the first four. They beat SMU in what might have been the best first-round game, just quality of play. And Baylor and SC were neck and neck till about five minutes left when Baylor went on that mini run to kind of pull away. So I'm, I'm going to give Coach Drew and his, his squad credit. They, they did what they were supposed to do. That's where I'll stop there. Now, South Carolina, Ken, I'll just go over some things here. In the first half against Duke, they scored 23 points. In the second half, they scored 65. <laughs> so that's the most points Coach K's ever given up, which is insane. But when you look at the box score, Thornwell, as great as he played, he had, what, 24, I think, 25? It right. wasn't the one-man band show that we, we thought we'd see for South Carolina to beat Duke. They completely blitzed them in all areas of, of the game in the second half, and I never thought I'd see the day where Duke and Coach K didn't know what hit them, but that was what South Carolina brought to the table. And if they can bring that to the table against a Baylor team that's undisciplined, they absolutely can win this game. Oh, yeah. I mean, I right now I don't necessarily know who I would make that pick for, but I was uh, just, this last couple hours, I went over, hung out at the happy hour. I was at a bar, and there were a couple South Carolina people there. And no, they were the like, woodwork. do you think we can win it? And I said, look, if you can beat Duke, you can certainly beat Baylor. I'm not going to downplay Baylor. I have a yellow Sharpie in front of me that I've been putting all my winners at for the NCAA tournament. Baylor wear those yellow Sharpie uniforms, which I hate. But, like... Man, if you can beat Duke, and that's a good Duke team, especially the way Jason Tatum was playing and Grayson Allen was coming along, that's not like a chump Duke team that was lucky to be where they were. They were solid too. Baylor's not that good. So South Carolina can go and execute the same way you said, specifically in that second half. They can do it. And I'd be lying to you if I said I watched the SEC week in and week out and I watched South Carolina all year. I was more of an ACC, a big East, Big Ten, you know, Pac-12 sort of guy. So the SEC was kind of at the bottom of my Power Five that I watched. Mm-hmm. But South Carolina, they certainly have the ability. They have a great coach. Frank Martin's been in these situations before. We'll have to see, but you mentioned this is in the East, so it's going to be New York City. It's not really a favor to either team, 
But overall, I think if you're South Carolina, you're going to roll in with the utmost confidence, and you know you have nothing to lose. They're going to go in loose. They're going to go in saying, look, no one gave us a shot against Duke. A lot of people didn't give us a shot in the first round against Marquette, and now no one's given us a shot against Baylor. And as long as they keep that mentality, that's probably a game with three, four minutes left. You don't know where it's going to finish. Right. Well, it was an interesting season for Duke up and down. They go... Coach K misses some time. Duke wins the ACC title game. They rally late in their season and then lose in the second round to South Carolina. Still talking college basketball and the Money Mitch Effect with Kent Brown. Let's go to the Midwest region. And there's, uh, as always, four games in the round of 32 in this region. But one of these things not like the other. One, three, and four all won. But two-seed Louisville Kent goes out to Michigan. Michigan winning 73-69. And if you're just looking at scores... You might think this was that nitty-gritty game, but Kent, that second half, Michigan dominated. Were you surprised with how they were able to do it against the Louisville team that people had some really high expectations for? I was one of those people. I had very high expectations. I thought they'd be able to press Michigan, be able to force turnovers, stop that three-point shooting barrage. But if you look at this with Michigan, you have Walton's been taken over. Uh, You have Wagner inside that's been terrific. And they just have a bunch of playmakers on the wing that can make plays. And the other thing they're doing, you put them at the line, they have like four guys out on the court that are over 80%. John Beeline's system, look, I grew up a kid in Pittsburgh. I watched those West Virginia teams mm-hmm. that Beeline had. If I was like six foot seven or six foot eight, that would have probably been the system that I would have dreamed of it's playing for. <laughs> like, it's, it's so much fun. And Walton now is peaking as one of the best point guards in the country. I thought that Louisville would win that game. I really did. And when Michigan took over in that second half, I dated back a week earlier and said, you know what? I don't want to use the quote, like the team of destiny thing, because I think that, you know, when you're out between the lines and you're on a court that's 94 feet, you're not thinking about things like that. You're just not. The fans think about it. The writers think about it. The journalists do. But the actual players don't in the heat of the moment. But the one thing about Michigan is they're confident. And as soon as they get going and they hit three or four three-pointers in a row, they're all of a sudden saying, we can't lose this game. And for Rick Pitino and Louisville, on paper, they're a very good team. But Michigan have a lot of talent. They peaked in the right moment. And you know this. Look at UConn a few years ago with Shabazz Napier, even before that with Kemba Walker or some of these Butler teams. When you get hot at the right time and you have confidence and then you also have the talent, where maybe you under-succeeded for most of the season, all of a sudden you're in a position to do some damage. And so, like, we mentioned Wisconsin being an eight seed in the East. You look at Michigan as a seven seed in the Midwest, they're thinking we're the team to beat. Right. They're not all that concerned with Oregon coming up. They're not going to be that concerned with Purdue, who they've played a couple times, or Kansas. Michigan's thinking we're the team to beat. We have the playmakers. We have the coach. Yeah, overall, I was surprised, Mitch. I definitely was somebody who thought Louisville would win. But the way Michigan's played, and especially the way they beat Oklahoma State, and our buddy Rob, I know you've had Crowder on the podcast here before, he even said, he goes, if Michigan wasn't the hottest team in NCAA second-half history, we'd have won that game. And that's true. They went 11 for 15 from three Mm -hmm. just to escape Oklahoma State 92-91. But they did it. They had to make those shots. The same way against Louisville in the second half. They had to make those shots. I haven't seen a team this hot beyond the arc with the ability to also drive and dish and go inside. 
And then late in the game, Mitch, I'll say right now, slate's clean, all 16 teams remaining. If you're told right now you can pick any team in, in the remaining field and they're up three, needing to shoot free throws for the final 25 seconds to win a game, are you taking anyone over Michigan? Stuff. I'm not sure not. I am. <laughs> you're probably right. I mean, they just keep winning. You know, they've been doing it for, they were 19-11 on the bubble for the tournament. They keep winning. And I was surprised in the sense that Louisville is a team predicated on defense. Like you said, they pressed. If anybody was going to be able to slow Michigan down, they were going to be the team to do it. And they did in the first half relatively. But then Michigan got their offense going. And look, they don't turn the ball. They don't. That's That's the other thing. thing. They had four turnovers in their first game. They had six against Louisville. And they came in. Them and Notre Dame were one and two in least turnovers in the country. If you're not turning the ball over and you're making 80 plus percent free throws, and then on top of it, you're adding in a bunch of three pointers. I don't know. I think that's a recipe for success. So it's a fascinating thing. I'm not willing to say right now that they're going to win it all or even make the Final Four. But if it's late and it's close and if they have a slight lead in that final minute, they're going to be in good shape. They are. And uh, I do want to say with with all due respect to Louisville and all you Rick Pitino jokesters out there, they're bounced early. Oregon is who Michigan is going to play. Rhode Island gave them a game. It was 75-72. Oh, that game could have easily gone Rhode Island's way. They were dominating much of it. Before we move on, Kent, do you think Oregon showed some vulnerability, or is this test kind of a good thing that they were able to win a close game against Rhode Island? Yeah, I would say that Oregon is vulnerable, and the main reason why is you lose a guy like Chris Boucher, and that's a huge blow. He was, you know, a double-double guy, somebody that you can go to in the post. And you lose that, and now you're more perimeter-oriented. And, look, that's not a terrible thing to be. Look at last year's national champion in Villanova. They were perimeter-oriented. But the thing about Oregon is, can they now do it against good competition for two or four more games? They've done it for two. They found a way to beat Rhode Island. It wasn't pretty, but they closed that game on a late run. were able to win it. You look at the first round. That was simple. You get it done as a three seed. But now you go forward. Michigan, although they're a seven, as we said, they're probably better at that than that when they play their A game. And then you look at Kansas at the top and Purdue. Those are two teams that are really good and two teams that I think would be favored over Oregon if they play them. So is Oregon vulnerable? Yes. I think if Oregon makes it all the way to Phoenix for the Final Four, that would be a huge surprise. Frankly, if you're giving odds on the four teams, Oregon might be the fourth team out of all those that you or I or most people would think would actually make it. So I'm not down on Dylan Brooks. I'm not totally down on the Oregon team. But I do think without Boucher, for them to beat Michigan when they're playing as well as they are and then go and have to beat Kansas or Purdue, that's asking a lot. So I highly doubt, if I had to say, that Oregon will get to Phoenix and make the Final Four. I want to give props to Rhode Island for being a very good team, beating Creighton thoroughly, and then giving Oregon all they can handle. You know, Dorsey hitting that three when they were down three, less than two minutes left, really a clutch shot. Oregon has shooters, and they're never going to be out of any game. But, yeah, I'm I'm also worried about them. This team losing one of their their top, if not their best player, runs into the Michigan buzzsaw, and then would have to beat either Purdue or most likely Kansas. I mean, that is asking a lot out of this team. We're going to get to Kansas and Purdue later in the show. They both hold serve Purdue in a very tight game over Iowa State and Kansas running away from Michigan State in the second half. But, Kent, I want to switch now to the West region. And right at the top of that region, you have that Gonzaga game. You have Gonzaga beating Northwestern. 
A lot of people are going to talk about the officiating, the non-goaltending call in this game. But I'm going to look at one thing, and that's the first half. I think Gonzaga showed that they're vulnerable late. But the way they started the game and the way Northwestern didn't come out and play, I thought that ultimately was the difference and not any one call in particular. Yeah, if people want to complain about that, look, it happened, it was a bad call, it's two points. There's no <laughs> yeah. point in any game outside of maybe the final play in a one or zero point type of game, where either it's tied or one team's up a point, that it really is going to make that drastic of a difference. Yeah. It was a bad call. But for Chris Collins to run out on the court like he did, right in the official's head, which you can't do. You can't go face-to-face with an official and not expect to get a technical foul called. And then on top of it, your team's back in the game. Yes, it's a bad call. There's no way around that. But there's still a lot of time. At that point, there were like three and a half, four minutes left. That doesn't lose you any ball game. I mean, I'm a big believer in any sport, especially basketball, where there's so many points. The one play does not win or lose you any ball game. And to think that Northwestern will now say, and it's probably most of the fans, I don't think Chris Collins a week from now would actually admit this, but most people will say, oh, that cost us a game. Well, that's not fair because Gonzaga still had to go out and execute late, make their plays, get their stops, score their points to win that game. So overall, Gonzaga was the better team. And you're right, if it wasn't for about a 20-minute lull, Gonzaga probably would have been up 16-17, and it would have made a difference. Gonzaga's a good team. I'm not sure on paper that they're really one of the best four teams in the country, so we'll see what they do against West Virginia in the Sweet 16 or against Arizona or Xavier in the Elite Eight. But Gonzaga is athletic. Their guards can hit outside jumpers. They have two or three guys that can get to the rim with consistency, and then you have the big the Polish center, Karnowski, down low, that he can make buckets, get high percentage looks, go to the line, sink those free throws, that's a team that's going to be around in every game. So if you look last year in the Sweet 16, it was that Syracuse-Gonzaga game in which both of them were double-digit seeds. Gonzaga blew that game and probably blew their opportunity for a Final Four in losing to Syracuse. It's going to be fascinating to see them against West Virginia and that press and then either Arizona or Xavier with their athleticism. But... Dating back to what you just said with Northwestern, look, we know a lot of journalism people, a lot of people in our industry, in sports media or Northwestern people, they're going to be crying foul. They're going to be trying to come up with excuses. The better team won the game. And at the end of the day, one play, especially a goaltending with three and a half or four minutes left, really doesn't set the entire game and give one team a victory. It just doesn't. And I think part of it, too, Ken, they just don't really know how to handle these situations. They've never been here before. This is the first time Northwestern's fan base has been to the tournament. So, hey, it's their first taste of despair. It happens. They should have moved on. Collins running out of the court was inexcusable. But, yeah, the better team won the game. It, it right. Was, have you ever talked uh, to a buddy the first time he got <laughs> It's a very different <laughs> conversation than the seventh or eighth time he got <laughs> It really is. I mean, it's just... There's a whole different priority and a different skill set of what you have. You're now a veteran. You understand the experience. So the first time you're there, it's cool. You're good. You felt like you had a great time, but there's a lot of excuses. Yeah, after you're there right. a few times, you're all right. Okay. All right. Yeah, that's a, that's a good metaphor. <laughs> all right. Well, they're going to play West Virginia in the next round. I thought I thought for sure the wheels would go off with the uh, – with Patino losing early again, but no, it uh, it happened here. Arizona and Xavier both advanced to the Sweet 16, Kent. 
And for Arizona, they actually struggled about as bad as you could imagine in that first half against St. Mary's. I was mildly concerned, but also I kind of took the positive out of it, Kent, because Arizona winning the Pac-12, coming in on fire, a lot of championship aspirations, could not have played a worse first half, but they survived it. They played well in the second half. They showed their depth, and I think ultimately it'll help them going forward. One thing Sean Miller always has his teams doing, dating back to Xavier and now Arizona, they play good enough defense to keep them in ball games. If they would have been a terrible defensive team, they would have been down 13 or 14 points in the first half and never came back. Instead, they chipped away, they got some stops, they got within one point at the half, and then in the second half, they took over. You look at their big men, Markinen. I mean, I love him and what he brings to the table. He's kind of a double-double guy in the last few weeks, which is huge. Ristich as well in the center is a big guy that you can go to that's capable around the bucket of scoring. And then outside, you have Trier, Allen, Atkins, you know, Jackson Cartwright. Those are all guys that are capable in any game of putting up double figures. So I really like what they did. I thought that St. Mary's would cover that spread, especially when they were up 8 or 10 points early. I really felt good about it. Arizona warmed down. They got after them defensively, and the same thing they did to Oregon in the Pac-12 title game, and the same thing they did to UCLA in the Pac-12 semifinal game was wear down the opponent, win those last seven or eight minutes. And if you can do that, you know, a lot of March Madness is, and one of the reasons I originally picked Villanova to go far, they were good at that in games this year Mm -hmm. of closing teams out late. And if you can do that in March and you can win the first weekend, second weekend, and then the third weekend to cut down those nuts in Phoenix, you're going to be in good shape. And right now Arizona is trying to kind of have a home Final Four, and San Jose is not far from where they are. They'll have the best fan base there. I know Gonzaga is not far either, but let's be real. The U of A, their student body is a lot bigger. Their fan base is a lot more rabid. They'll be there in support. And for the first time in four or five years, I think this is their best shot of getting there. They lost to Wisconsin a couple times and didn't quite get there in L.A. and Anaheim, I feel pretty good that if Arizona can play well defensively, they're going to be in great shape to get the Phoenix and cut down the nets to go to the Final Four. Yeah, it was a, a great second half. They turned it on. St. Mary's is a physical team that Arizona knows all too well by scrimmaging them a couple times during the uh, during the offseason. But Arizona moving on, and awaiting them will be Xavier this is a Xavier team. They came in as an 11 seed, but as a team with a, a tournament pedigree. Chris Mack has done a wonderful job there. And, and to beat Florida State, I know they're the three seed, and a lot of people said they're maybe a little bit overrated. But can they beat them by 25 points? And it was every bit as bad as that final score. Maybe the most impressive individual game I saw all weekend. Like I said, I hope you bet it, man. I know I, I told did. you on Friday. I even said after Thursday, I texted some friends, including bunch of our friends of the podcast, Gothard and Crowder and Schultz and all those guys, and said, hey, if you want a winner on Saturday, pick Xavier. They're going to beat Florida State, get those six or seven points, or just take the money line. I love the way that they've been playing. The Big East is tough. If you look at it, the Big East is not a Power 5 conference the way those other ones are for football's sake, but for basketball, seven of the ten teams made the tournament. They're all highly competitive. None of them looked terrible this weekend, really. They showed up. They played well. And for Xavier, you mentioned Chris Mack. He was an assistant under Sean Miller. Uh Every year Sean Miller was there as a head coach at Xavier. So this is now the second time in three years that he'll be going up against Sean Miller in the regional. Xavier is pretty routine to the Sweet 16 thing. 
They haven't quite touched upon that Elite Eight very often, but this is a Xavier team that kind of expects to be there. They recruit well. They have a bunch of great competition out of conference, a ton of great competition in conference. They're going to go into this game much like what we said about Michigan, and they're going to say, look, guys, we're not an 11 seed. You know, we're a team that is on paper as good as this team. Now, they're probably not, but they can buy into that, and they can sell themselves on it. And Chris Mack's going to tell us, guys, look, we've been able to beat top-tier opponents. We've been able to knock off teams that made runs. If you look at a bunch of teams left in the Sweet 16, they've beaten three of them. On paper, Xavier, yes, they don't have all the five stars the same way Arizona does. But when you start looking player by player, they can go seven, eight deep, and they can compete with Zona. And it's probably going to be a battle. I don't know what the over-under is yet, but that's one of those ones that if you look at Xavier and Arizona, I think that overall both teams are comfortable playing lower tempo, trying to score in the high 60s, low 70s, and making things happen then. And if that's the way it goes, I think that Xavier will be in good shape. And if you're going to give me, let's say, the over-unders, you know, I guess it's right around 145. If you're Xavier... You're probably going to cover that seven and a half. You're probably going to try to go under, and then you're going to hope to extend those Arizona bigs outside, look for those back cuts, look for those screens at the top of the key, try to get that intermediate game going, and then kick it out to your shooters if you need to. Xavier can do that. So overall, I kind of lean towards Arizona right at this moment. But I will say, I think whoever wins this game is going to be in pretty good shape for the Elite Eight. Yeah, and I, and I like what Chris Mack's done. Everybody worried when Miller left the Xavier job for Arizona what would happen to Xavier. They just keep, this is what they do. They just keep getting to Sweet 16s, even when they don't have a lot of talent. Though I do like watching Makura play number 55 for Xavier. And before we. <laughs> even, even in his wetsuit? Yeah, it, it's, it's so strange for somebody to look to have that awful style be that good at basketball. It's yeah, he looks like he's just getting ready to surf the Pacific, and he doesn't want any sun on any part of his body that can't be exposed. But he's great. I think Xavier overall as a team are great. And I really look forward to that matchup. You know, if it was out here in Southern California this weekend, I think I'd probably go. But the fact that it's up in San Jose, I'll watch it on TV. We'll, hell, we'll probably watch it together, to be honest. Well, so, yeah, it should be a lot of fun. Of that. Yeah, there's a good chance of that for sure. All right, one more region left. It's the South. I saved it for last. Kent Brown on the Money Mitch Effect talking college basketball. And there's a lot to digest here, though. We did get a lot of these heavy hitters, all these heavy hitters, really, the Blue Bloods, all advancing to the South Sweet 16. North Carolina will start with the top seed, Kent. They advance over Arkansas. Wow, 72-65. North Carolina goes on a 12-0 run at the end of the game to win it. They were down by double digits in the second half. I hate to ask the cliche question, Kent, whether UNC won it or Arkansas lost it, but it definitely feels like there were some strong elements of both in that final couple minutes. I mean, I'm always a believer that it's a little bit of both, but <laughs> you have to win the game, and you have to go out and make those plays. And look, I understand that the Joel Berry play may have been a travel, may have been a charge, but you know what? They didn't call it, mm -hmm. so therefore it wasn't. And then you had the tip in by Meeks. You had the follow-up by Hicks after the rebound to get his two points. Hicks goes to the line. He makes his his free throws. They get their stops. Theo Pinson has a huge uh, block charge call that goes the other way. North Carolina, I would say, won the game because I think it's too easy, especially a lot of times when there's a lower-seeded team, to say they lost it. 
and especially us as fans of teams, we probably lean towards saying that. But for the other team to lose it, there has to be a team that goes out and wins it. Right. You know, no one hands the other team the ball. No one purposely commits an offensive foul. Nobody purposely doesn't get a rebound. You have to go out and make those plays. And they close with a 12-0 run. They earn that win. And look, North Carolina is a good team, but they're very vulnerable. They have a bunch of bigs, but they don't seem to play consistent basketball at all. The same way that you can make an argument that the one seed Kansas doesn't, that maybe the one seed Gonzaga, when tested, won't, and obviously the one seed in Villanova didn't and got bounced. So North Carolina is very good, but if you look at Butler, this is a program that's not going to be afraid of anybody. They were able to beat Villanova twice this year. They were able to go out and beat a bunch of Big East teams, a couple of which are still left in the tournament, like a Xavier. And then on top of it, for North Carolina, yes, they peaked well and they beat a team in Arkansas, but that's not a great Arkansas team. This is not Wisconsin. This is not some team that has been there and done that. This is an Arkansas team that when they were up 20 in the first half, that should have been it. Never should have brought them back in the game. And instead, Arkansas was within four at the break. They were up early in the second half. And North Carolina needed quite a comeback, as you said, to win the game. So I think overall for Butler, we're going to get to the other blue blood soon. But if you look at this and you just break it out, how many national championship finals appearances have these teams been in in the past decade? You have Kentucky's been in a couple. North Carolina's been in a couple, Butler's (laughs) been in a couple, and UCLA's been in one. Butler's there with all these teams. So as a program, they're not some program that all of a sudden is going to look at North Carolina, Kentucky, and UCLA and think, oh, we can never match up to them. They're thinking, we screwed up our opportunities to be that national champ, and we're now at a power conference. We're in a program-building phase where we can be better than a lot of other teams. So North Carolina... I think I said this to a couple of our buddies yesterday when I was watching over at our friend uh, Johnny Button's place, but I said, like, look, Carolina might win, but you better believe Butler's going to make it tough for 40 minutes, and every ounce of energy North Carolina has to put in to win that game, Butler's going to force them to do. I highly doubt that's a blowout. I highly doubt that North Carolina comes across feeling great about what it did. Mm -hmm. If you say to me right now, if I was a Carolina fan and you said, look, you're going to win by three, but it's going to be hard-earned, I take it. I think that's going to be a tough game, and Butler's the type of team, they're going to get you to play their style, and it's probably going to be a pretty close game. Yeah, and and I just want to touch on the North Carolina-Arkansas game real quick. I know the Barry call might, it was, could have been seen as egregious, might have been worse those are tough calls. You know, it, 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 Charge block calls are, are extremely it, tough, and most of them are. Yeah, when it, you actually look at replays, most oh, of yeah. the blocks. It's tough, but Arkansas didn't score in the last three and a half minutes of the game. Zero points. That, right. like One call is one call. No points in the last couple minutes is another thing. But give North Carolina credit. They strapped down. They used their size. They, they gutted it out without playing well. And I do think Butler, you know, is there a more fitting name for a style of play in in college than the Bulldogs of Butler? I mean, I don't know. I think that just that fits who they are to a T. You said they're going to make it tough, and I'm inclined to agree. The other side of that South region, Kent, UCLA and Kentucky both win. UCLA first, they were the late cap of Sunday night, and that Cincinnati game was close, Cincinnati winning in the first half. UCLA stuck in neutral, and then it happened. They turned that switch on. They're the, the ultimate surge team, I describe them, Kent. For any four or five minute run, I don't know, even Michigan included, that there's anybody I'd rather have 
in UCLA with Lonzo Ball running the show. Yeah, I said I was at a Westwood bar. I was in that vicinity, you know, right off UCLA's campus. It was a bunch of Bruins. I was actually wearing a UCLA T-shirt on Sunday because, you know, I have a lot of friends and, like, and a bunch of people close to me that I built those relationships over the years. I've lived in Westwood and then a mile away in Brentwood. And I like the Bruins. I certainly will root for them over the Trojans. So it was a fun environment where USC was ending, and then they lost. So there was a bunch of, a lot of happy people that were already Bruins. And then they watched their team play. But I wasn't really stressed out in the first half. I didn't think UCLA was necessarily playing poorly. They just weren't hitting shots. And it's the same way when you're a high-scoring team, especially beyond the arc, part of that philosophy is keep shooting. You eventually start to make them especially if they're open. And Cincinnati wants to play a game in the 60s. They want to win that sort of low it out. You know, you grind the game, you get a low score, you hope to win 67, 64. That's the way they want to play. For UCLA, I simply said to a friend, I said, they're going to get 40 in the second half. They're going to at least get to 70. And I said, if they get to 50, which they had 30 at the half, they're going to win. And that's what they did. They ended up scoring well over that margin, Alford was making threes. Lonzo Ball made threes. I actually said to a friend of mine, I said, if they go on a 9-0 run right now and hit three straight threes, they're going to be in good shape. And at the time they were down one, they hit a three. They hit another three, and they hit the third three. And I looked at my friend and said, what did I say? And he goes, yeah, you were right. And that was nine straight points. They got that eight-point lead, and they never looked back. Thomas Welsh is somebody they should get more shots to. He has a great mid-range game. He's not a great defensive guy, but he's seven foot. He can make his 12 to 15 foot jumpers, especially on the baseline. And then you have Ball on the outside and Holiday. You mix in Leaf. They have a ton of playmakers. It's going to be a real challenge for Kentucky to have to defend that for 40 minutes. But we know Calipari, his strength is defense. It's not necessarily great offense. So overall... I'm fascinated by that game. But, yes, I loved what I saw out of UCLA yesterday. And they're the type of team, they might start off slow for 20 or 25 minutes, but those final 15 minutes, they usually step up and they make big plays. Yeah, you hit the nail on the head with Leaf. I thought he you mix him in. It's the perfect change of pace guy inside. He's got great touch. And Ball was amazing in that second half. Running the offense, the passes, his shot, it was accurate, maybe unconventional. You know, it's just a shame Kenny doesn't have anybody hyping him up. I wish I heard more about him. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, I think there's a couple people that have, especially yeah. a uh, a fatherly figure. Yeah, yeah. That, that's certainly clear at this point. But in all seriousness, they play Kentucky, who beat Wichita State again. Another classic. These two just make hits when they share the same basketball court. But the ending of this game, I, I thought Kentucky was doing their best to keep Wichita in it in the final couple minutes. And then the last two possessions, good defense by Kentucky, but just some suspect offense by Wichita that turned into hero ball. I know Kent, the analytics, said that this was a good team and they proved that they can play with anybody. But I don't know, I'm just going off the top of my head here, I don't know that you know basketball aficionados or analytics are going to say to take two hero ball possessions like they did at the end of that game. Yeah, I think overall that offensively, Kentucky was pretty lousy the past few minutes. But the last couple minutes defensively, they made plays. Monk with that block, the final possession, where the defense was able to really make things happen was the difference. But, you know, Wichita's a scrappy team, and much like Wisconsin, they were under The one thing about them is that when you look on paper, 
they didn't beat a lot of teams that really had a lot of work. So you had to trust the analytics. You had to believe in what they did in their conference. And the Missouri Valley is good, but it's understandable why Illinois State was left out. It's understandable why Wichita was put down to, let's say, a 10. I kind of thought they should have been an 8 or 9. But overall, it was a tough out for Kentucky, and I think it helped them a lot. I really think that Sunday's game will help them going forward because they needed one of these tests and specifically not a test against an even an elite team because they've had UCLA, they've had North Carolina, they've played the big five-star McDonald's All-Americans-laden teams. But when you go up against a Wichita, that's a team that on paper Kentucky should blast. They're a team that they have to think none of us would have ever thought about going to Wichita State, which no, is never. true. <laughs> and yet I bet after eight or ten minutes and probably the entire day or two leading up to it, Calipari was saying, guys, they're as good as us. They can beat us. This is going to go down to the final shot. And it probably took them until the final couple minutes to realize that's true. And De'Aaron Fox is lightning fast. Malik Monk continues to make plays. The forwards down low are now starting to contribute on a higher rate. I think Kentucky, the fact that they were battle-tested in the second round, I really think helps them. I think if they would have played somebody who wasn't that good, maybe a big conference team who kind of came on paper and thinking they would be as good, I think Kentucky, if they blew them out by 15, it might have not done them that well going into UCLA. But now that they've lost to UCLA a couple times, and they've been able to sort of, now not all these players because there's so many freshmen, but they've been able to say, look, we had to do that against Wichita. We played a good game and still nearly lost. They're going to know that they cannot be complacent at all against UCLA. So I think overall, when you look at the marquee matchup, Mitch, that's the marquee matchup of the round of 16, the Sweet 16. Friday night, late game, Kentucky, UCLA. It's back where John Calipari did a lot of his damage as a coach in the FedEx <laughs> Forum at yeah. Memphis. That's where he built up that Memphis program where a lot of us thought they might win it all and they were a shot away or a free throw away from defeating Kansas and cutting down the nets in San Antonio. He's now back there for the first time since that season. So it'll be fascinating to see what John Calipari does kind of in his home away from home in Memphis. But make no mistake, if UCLA is hot beyond the arc and they're scoring a bunch, I still doubt their defense. And that's where in this matchup I give Kentucky a slight edge. I think defensively they're much better. But overall, it's a fascinating game. UCLA opened up as a one-point favorite. I kind of thought Kentucky would be a point or a point-and-a-half favorite. I would lean towards Kentucky in this game. But it's going to be a real battle of which team, probably in those last five or six minutes, can make enough plays to win the game. And my guess is it goes down to the defensive end. And that's where I favor Kentucky. Yeah, and it's also, the matchup is also where Cal Party did a lot of his damage uh, in NCAA violations, so should be a good... <laughs> Fair point, good but I think if you look into a lot of big-time coaches, you no, probably no. wouldn't be that far off. I, I know, I'm just I'm just bringing that up because that... And also, I, I'll just ask you this how good do you feel about Steve Alford? I mean, look, I understand he's in the Sweet 16, but when he was at Iowa and he was at New Mexico... Yeah. He wasn't that good of a tournament coach. Right. And even look at the Pac-12 tournament the past few years. He hasn't you know, necessarily lit it up. Yeah. I think on paper, look, you and I both, I think we talked about this on Friday during St. Paddy's. We said Calipari's X's and O's is not some great coach. The same way Roy Williams on paper is not right. a great X's and O's guy. He brings in a lot of guys that can win him those games. But 
I don't think I don't have a lot of faith in Steve Alford as a whole. I think he's okay, he's good, but if you're going to tell me the last four minutes Steve Alford has to coach up a team to win, right. I don't think it's a guarantee he does it at all. I think it's going to be decided by the players, and I know it sounds cliche, but I don't think coaching is going to make the difference in this game one way or the other. I would highly doubt that. But Ken Brown, before I let you go, I want to just talk a little bit about the the round of sixteen and then the elite eight. What's what are you looking forward to the most, and uh, who do you think are going to be going to the final four in Glendale, Arizona? I would say right now I'm looking forward to that South region that we just talked about. Kentucky, UCLA, North Carolina, Butler. It's the only region where the one, two, three, and four seed advance. It's three of the four blue bloods that made it to that point. I think I'm fascinated with the West region as well because Gonzaga, Arizona would be a lot of fun. West Virginia is a team that knocked out my Irish. I'm a Notre Dame guy. They own that game. They deserve to win that game. They'll press. They'll make it interesting on Gonzaga. And then that Kansas-Purdue game yes. <laughs> is just fascinating. I think Purdue with their bigs. Swanigan, about as good a big as you can hope for. Haas, that 7-2 guy that comes off the bench, is terrific. Purdue have the guard play to make it interesting. So it's kind of like Kansas is very guard-oriented. Purdue is very big-oriented. That's a game before the tournament. I predicted Purdue to win, and I still like their chances, even though they nearly blew it against Iowa State. So that's a lot of a fun game. And then... Will Michigan just ride out this journey? I don't know if they will. My guess is no. But overall, if I had to predict the Final Four at this moment, I'll lean towards Arizona in the West. I will lean towards, man, at this point, I guess I'll say Kentucky in the South. I like Purdue or Kansas. Whoever wins that game in the Midwest, so I'm kind of hedging my bets. But I get gun to my head, and I'll <laughs> lean towards Purdue, even okay. though Kansas looked outstanding in the first round. And then the final region in the East, which is now kind of the forgotten about region, even though it's in Madison Square Garden. Man, I, uh, I don't like Baylor or South Carolina. So I guess, sadly, I'm going to go with the Florida Gators, and I don't like them. I don't want them to win. And those are your four. I would love to have Wisconsin win that game. But... Even though I just predicted all four of those, I predicted Florida, Kentucky, Arizona, and I predicted Purdue. Wow. It wouldn't shock me if all yeah. four of those teams lost their next round. So yeah. all these Sweet 16 matchups set up pretty well. And it's like I said to you, after the round of 64, when you have the good seeds win and you set up a good round of 32, it almost always leads to a great second weekend. So the best matchup I feel about out of all eight of these, and I'm looking at them now, out of all eight... I guess I would lean towards saying maybe, and then again, now I'm looking at it and I'm doubting myself, <laughs> but I guess out of all eight, the one I feel best about is North Carolina over Butler, and even that I think is like a one or two score game. Tough weekend. I just want to point out to everyone listening, there was not an actual gun pointed to your head. So that was just a strictly... Well, how do you know? Because we are just oh, yeah. an audio That's podcast. That's true. Well, I didn't, so. I didn't point a gun to your head. Okay, I had you nothing to do with it. it. But I'm not saying that I couldn't have brought in a friend. Okay. I couldn't have had a Glock That's loaded. Fair. I couldn't have maybe, That's you know, fair. brought in a 9 millimeter and hey, said, I, let's have some fun. So I get it. Purdue, Kansas is tough. I get it. That's a tough one. But I, I'm looking forward to the Arizona-Xavier-Miller-Mac reunion. And that South region is just loaded. There's so many potential fascinating matchups, Kent. We talked about... Could you imagine Arizona and Wisconsin playing again in the Final Four this time? 
I mean, that would be something to watch, too. I think Sean Miller wants to do everything he can to make sure Wisconsin does not get the Phoenix if he gets oh, there. Yeah, like, I, I mean, don't know if he has to buy off some rest, yeah. if he has to sacrifice, you know, some animals or whatever he has to do. I feel like Sean Miller's like, okay, guys, yeah, what are the, whatever uh, needs to happen that Wisconsin does not play us, I'm in. If you tell him, hey, he's like, look, I'm out, I'm out at 65. Give me 65 good years, and I'm out. If I can win this title and they're not around us, Sign me up. Yeah, well, I don't know what the Hebner twins are doing. Maybe you can call them up. I mean, there might be, <laughs> there might be some former WWE employees. Little Montreal screw job going. The lights go out. Yeah, I don't know. I'm just throwing around ideas. We don't have WrestleMania season, so it's possible. It is. I'm gonna say my final four teams. I have a few of them still intact. Not all. I'm gonna say Zona, Kansas. I like UCLA, and I'll go on. Give me South Carolina. I'm gonna ride wow. that train. I think I think Wisconsin, in typical Wisconsin fashion, wins one more game and then just gets you know left at the altar to a South Carolina team that that's peaking with Frank Martin. Who hey, he's 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 a passionate guy. He's a pit bull fan. Those two go hand in hand at this time of year. I feel like. Oh yeah, he's a Miami guy <laughs> for sure, and he has former Miami head coach Perry Clark on his staff. I saw that yesterday, and look, it's possible. I mean. I would think it's unlikely at this point, but I didn't think they'd even make this. I, I didn't think they'd beat Duke. I didn't think I would not have thought that two weeks ago South Carolina would have made the Sweet 16. So to say they can win two more sounds a little surprising to me. But if you're going to say they're going to beat a three seed in Baylor and then an eight seed in Wisconsin, yeah, they're a seven seed. They're not bad. So who knows? Who knows indeed. Well, Kent Brown, thanks for joining the Money Mitch Effect. I appreciate it. And I know I'm going to see you in person before you head out, but best of luck career-wise with everything. And we'll have to get you back on here for sure. Yeah, dude, just let me know. I mean, we both are in the podcasting world. We both uh, love to talk sports and just sort of talk in general. So whenever you need me, hit me up. And uh, you can follow me on Twitter at KentBrownPod. You can check out my podcast, College Football Experience, a Gridiron Wake Up Call. We'll be doing a lot of draft stuff leading into the Gridiron Wake Up Call, which is an NFL pod. And then for the college football experience, we'll keep a lot of spring practice stuff all the way up till the summertime. And then a lot of stuff after we finish spring, because that's a 24 hour and 365 days a year of business as well. So, yeah, it'll be a lot of fun. So just keep in touch. And uh, I look forward to this round of 16 on to the Elite Eight. It should be a heck of a good eight games. All right. Kent Brown, thanks again. Reminding everyone also, if you're going to if you're going to take in the action, you might want to hedge every once in a while. <laughs> All right, big thanks again to Kent Brown for coming on the show. And definitely want to make sure you follow him on Twitter, listen to his podcast, and keep tabs on him. Very sharp dude. College basketball, college football, you name it. Thanks to Kent for breaking down the show. We went a little long, but hey, we could have gone longer. That was a lot of good content. Now it's time to switch sports. We're going to talk to Eric Roberts, resident puck expert. Eric comes on the show about once a month, and... There's not many people I trust talking hockey to more. We have a lot to break down with Eric Roberts, who writes for the Hockey Writers and is a Fox Sports Radio producer. We're in the final 10 or so games of the regular season. Eric's going to break down who's in and who's out of the playoff picture. The awards race is heating up, and teams playing for home ice when they do get to the playoffs. Eric Roberts, Money Mitch Effect. Here it is now.
All right, now joined by Eric Roberts of the Hockey Writers, Fox Sports Radio producer. We're going to talk some NHL as we approach the final weeks of the regular season. Eric, thanks for joining the show. Yeah, no problem, man. Always uh, down to talk some puck. We're coming down to the final stretch here, and it's looking like it's going to be a crazy finish. Yeah, absolutely. And I actually want to start with the local team, Eric. It's been a pretty disappointing season, to say the least, for the Kings. Last night, they lose to the Oilers 2 to nothing, and I don't want to say it's official, but if not, we're getting close. It does not look like the postseason is going to be in the Kings' future. Just how bad, how disappointing have these last couple of weeks been where the Kings have been in or on the playoff bubble to now looking like they're safely outside of it? Yeah, you know, it's it's been a tough stretch here because, you know, they've gone into these last five games, which were virtually must-win games for them against the, the Blues, uh, the Coyotes, the Sabres, the Flames, and the Oilers. You know, they were on the bubble when this stretch happened, when this stretch started. I think they were within grasp behind the Blues, maybe like two, three points behind them. And, uh, you know, the last five games, they've lost to the Blues, who they're chasing, to the Coyotes, who they should be beating with, without a doubt, and to the Flames and the Oilers, who they're chasing also in the playoff run. So, you know, you really wish you, in those kind of games, you, you shouldn't need to be able, have to get up for them. And what the Kings turned out on the ice, it just wasn't acceptable. And now, you know, they have 10 games remaining. They have 75 points. They're, I think, six points behind the Blues for the final wild card spot. And it just, it does not look promising at all for them. No, it doesn't. It didn't help that Calgary, another team in their division, took off, who we'll get to in a moment. But Eric, this team just doesn't look like they have it offensively. They just can't score goals. Bishop trade notwithstanding, the difference on this team has been offense. And you watched last night against Edmonton. It was only a 2 nothing game, but Edmonton dominated pace of play. The Kings have never been the fastest team, but suddenly it looks like they can't get teams to play their game. And I don't know if it's players on the downside of their career, just an off season, but it just doesn't appear to be working. Yeah, I think I think the, the NHL is adapting, and they're one of the last few teams to kind of you know move away from that. We're a big tight checking team, which has you know been the the, the mantra of LA Kings hockey. We're going to be big. We're going to be physical. We're going to play rough in the corners. But the rest of the NHL is kind of developing into you know a faster, more speedier kind of league. And they still have size, you know, sprinkled throughout. But I think the Kings are really struggling with adapting to that on the fly. You know, it might be something that has to be addressed during the off season, with you know personnel changes, with players being moved around on the lineup. But you know, outside of maybe Jeff Carter's line and Kopitar, you know, you have too many of the same type of players sprinkled down in the bottom six roles, and it's just not—it's not cutting it for the Kings. And before we move on, Eric, I want to ask you point blank: Do you think this is? going to have to be a full or semi-full rebuild, or do you think the Kings will be okay with some tweaks next season? I think it's more of a tweak kind of thing because, I mean, you know, they are still on the, on the cusp of it. You know, they're, it's not like they're stellar dwellers. They're down with, you know, like the Sabres and the Coyotes of the league, but they are going to have to make some moves and kind of restructure how, they, how they're built past the top two lines. The Toffoli's, the Pierce's, the Carters, those are all fine, but, you know, once you get past that second line you have, too many, you know, Nolan, Andrea, too many of the similar kind of players. So I think it's more of a tweak. It's not a full rebuild just because, you know, they still have that nucleus of, you know, the, t- the teams that won two cups in three years. So I don't think it's a full-on rebuild. It should just be a, a couple little tweaks. I'm hoping, you know, it's a quick little one because the results aren't there next year. It's, it's going to be chaos, that's for sure. 
Yeah, we'll see where the Kings go from here, but a bit disappointing and a bit startling to see them on the outside of the playoffs with just a short time to go in the regular season. Let's switch now to the Central Division, Eric, and one team that never needs a rebuild, that never seems to be in duress. The Chicago Blackhawks are 8-2 and two in their last 10, a five-game winning streak, 99 points. That's seven more than the Wild, who they just zoomed right by. I think we should never be surprised what Chicago does, but how quickly they made up that ground is impressive even for them. Yeah, they're in their usual spot, you know. It's, when it comes to this time, they just seem, this time of year, every year, they kind of just be, they seem to be on another level than the rest. When you look at teams, you kind of try to find what what their strong suit is, and what I always go to is how they play on the road and how they play at home, but I mean, there's not even a blemish there. They're 24-9-4 at home, and 23-11-1 and on the road, so it's Every night, no matter where they are in in the league, they are lined up to get a win. You know, it's just the Blackhawks, they're the pinnacle of, like, what you want to be as an organization yeah. at this point over recent memory. So it doesn't surprise me. And when they when they had their a couple rough patches and, you know, the Minnesota Wild were ahead of them every now and then throughout the season, I thought, okay, it's just, when, when are they going to click, you know? And then it, it definitely clicked. And it's definitely revolved around, you know, the play of Patrick Kane. He's been on fire recently. Um, I think since February 1st, he has the most goals and points in the league. It's just, they're clicking on all cylinders right now. Yeah, they really are. And it's crazy to me that people counted this team out. I know Taves struggled. Kane wasn't, he was good, but he wasn't quite at that MVP level. But I keep going to how they're able to find talent, Eric. I mean, they have the two highest paid players in the league. And yet every year, it seems like there's new faces that can step in and shine on some of their bottom mid-level lines. Yeah, I mean, they 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 haven't had a an off season or a trade deadline or a free agency where they're just like they haven't come out better in recent memory. I mean, even this year they brought back um, Johnny Oduya, mm-hmm. a familiar face. He's, it's not like a new player is going to have to come in and get used to the system. He's going to slide. He slid right in, and uh, there's no buffer period for that. So it's, they're always making moves that you come out and you're thinking, wow, they improved again. You know, on the flip side of that, Eric, the Wild are 2-8 and eight in their last 10, now 7 points off of Chicago. They had the most points in the Western Conference for a long time. I know losing this many games is a lot. We've seen teams stumble into the regular season and then turn it on in the playoffs, but just how serious are the concerns there in Minnesota? Um, I, you know what? I, it's, it's an interesting situation because of, you know, you want to get hot. It's kind of the opposite with going on Chicago, you want to get hot going into the playoffs. But like you said, when you kind of stumble it through the final regular season, it, it could serve as a nice little wake-up call. And for a team like Minnesota, you know, they haven't had the, the recent success like, you know, some of the teams that have been through, through it regularly, you know, like the Sharks last year, the, the Blackhawks year in, year out. So, you know, it, it might benefit the Wild, you know, as a sort of a wake-up call. That's like, okay, guys, we had this. We had this hiccup coming down the stretch. Let's turn it on now. You know, we, we can't afford this. Once the playoffs start, so you know, I think I think it, in the long haul, the big aspect of things that this might actually help out once it comes playoff time, and you know, get this this last speed bump out of the way before it comes the second round. You know, mm-hmm. yeah, I agree with with a lot of what you're saying, and obviously, this team has been hit with injuries, and they had that mumps outbreak for a little bit, and what have you. Except for the fact that I still don't know that they can beat Chicago. And the way the playoffs are set up, Eric, they have to go through their division. That's the biggest concern for me. Yeah, yeah, definitely. 
once they once they hit like if they do come cross paths with Chicago, I don't know if they can beat Chicago. I definitely think Chicago is the team to beat in the Central Division. I see them coming out of that no matter who they face just because of how they're playing right now. Yeah, it's, it'll be interesting to see if they can pick it up, turn it around, or if they just kind of stumble into the postseason as a quick exit for them, which would honestly be a letdown with how they played throughout long stretches of the season. And how aggressive they've been at the trade deadline. We'll have to see with Minnesota, but it just seems like every year Chicago figures out a way to knock out Minnesota in the playoffs. As I continue chatting with Eric Roberts about NHL on the Money Mitch Effect. Eric, let's talk about one of the more surprising teams in the entire NHL the last couple months, and that's the Calgary Flames. They were a bubble wildcard team trying to just get into the playoffs, but now not only are they comfortably in, but they're competing for a top three Pacific Division spot. Should we be taken aback by what Calgary's doing? And do you think that this team, I know it's hard to say and it sounds funny to say, but do you think this team is really a contender? You know, it's weird. It's, it's like you said, it's, it's, it's weird to say that I think the Flames are a contender just because it's, it hasn't really been said much in recent history. But, you know, I think it all boils down to is, is how far how far Brian Elliott can carry him. I mean, he has 23 wins a season, but it's also going to be how composed and how how far the the young kids, you know, this is a really young team. It's really youth driven. How long and how composed they can they can carry on this this streak that they're on. You know, they set a franchise record for wins and uh, consecutive wins over with like ten or so last week. They're winning big games like they beat the Kings uh, two days ago. Mm-hmm. That was a huge win for them against a veteran team. So it's, they look like they know what they're doing, but it's it's going to come down to whether or not this youth movement can last and Brian Elliott can how far he can carry them. Yeah, nine and one in their past ten. I mean, they're the hottest team in hockey right now. And and while they're a point out of the Pacific Division, they could finish second. I mean, Edmonton and Anaheim both have eighty-seven points. I thought their trade deadline was underratedly good. Stone was a big success. It wasn't just Elliott, but defensively they had some some weaknesses, so they addressed that. And, and we know about the offensive talent there. I'm just still not sure that in a playoff series, Eric, when you can't really catch teams by surprise that this Calgary team can win four out of seven. Yeah, yeah. Once once that long grind of the playoffs gets going, it'll be interesting to see how exactly they respond. They might, you know, they might squeak out an, an opening round win against maybe, you know, the Ducks or the Oilers, and then we'll see how, how it progresses with, you know, the long, the rigorous toll of a, of a deep playoff run. But, you know, I definitely think they're, they know what they need to do to succeed, and they, they've they're definitely been using that for the last couple of weeks. So before we move on to the Eastern Conference, Eric, Chicago, Minnesota, you know, we obviously got to consider last year's Western Conference champs, the Sharks, but are there any other Western Conference teams right now as we get ready to approach the playoffs that you think might be good enough to make a run and get to the final? Um, you know, I think you, you, you can't count the Ducks just because, you know, they have the veteran presence, they have players on there have done it before, but I'm, I'm really interested to see how the Oilers do it. I think the Oailers, they have their one of the, the trailblazers on this new, young, fast, finesse, kind of fast-paced NHL that's developing. And, and you know, the big thing with them is that they're a big question mark. You're not, you don't know exactly how they're going to go about the long haul of a playoff series. So I think that's a big question mark. They might be able to catch a team by surprise. And they have they definitely have the talent. They have the speed. Cam Talbot's been performing for them. They have the star power, you know, in Connor McDavid. They have the greatness. Milan Lucic, so it, it, I think the, that the Oilers, 
to be a nice little sleeper pick going into the playoffs. Right. No, I, I agree. I think they're a curious team to watch in their first taste of, of the postseason in quite some time. And I'm also looking at Nashville, too. I think they can make a run. So we'll have to see. The Sharks look good again. The Blackhawks, obviously, maybe the Wild can turn it on. I think it's wide open in the Western Conference. I, I want to go out east now for a good amount of time, Eric. The Metro Division right now, each of the top three teams have played 71 games. Columbus and Washington have 100 points, and Pittsburgh have 99. We were waiting all season for this division to come back to earth, and it doesn't appear like that ever happened. Yeah, they've only had their foot on the gas. They haven't really had any hiccups. Um, you know, Columbus had that, that monster win streak for the season. Capitals have just been pedal to the floor the whole season. Crosby and the Penguins have been Crosby and the Penguins. No, you know, Stanley Cup slump, you know, like most people talk about. It's the Metropolitan Division is a murderer's row of uh, teams right now, that's for sure. I look at these three teams. I mean, they're the, not only the three best teams point-wise in their division in the Eastern Conference, but in the entire NHL. And the way this playoff system is set up, you're going to have two of these teams playing each other in the first round. Do you think that, I don't want to say favors one or the other, but I'll ask it a different way. Is it bigger for one of these three teams to not have to play somebody else that important in the first round? Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm thinking when you put it that way, you definitely want to be the capital. You want to be the number one seed. You want to, You don't want that first round matchup against one of these juggernauts just because, you know, the Capitals' history with, you know, the shortcomings in the playoffs. I think they definitely want to be the number one seed overall, you know, in the cross NHL, be the be the President's Trophy winner, you know, grab that second wild card, whoever it is, whether it's the, the Maple Leafs or the um, or the Islanders, maybe the Lightning if they squeak in. But, you know, the Capitals, they I definitely don't think they want to run into, you know, the Crosby and Penguins duo again. They don't want to get go against Bobrovsky and um, the Blue Jackets, you know, just because they do have that history of shortcomings in the playoffs, and that might be in the back of their minds, you know, if they, they look across and they see the Penguins and Crosby lining up against them in the first round of the playoffs. Right, now, I think you can make the case that by far they have the most pressure on them. When you talk about a young Columbus team that wasn't supposed to be here this quick, and Pittsburgh's won two Stanley Cups under Crosby and Malkin, so I, I think the pressure is squarely on Washington. Oh yeah, definitely. This is this is by far the most talented group Ovechkin has had in the Ovechkin era is the Capitals. So there's a lot of eyes on them and a lot of pressure on that organization to be like, it's kind of Stanley Cup or bust for them right now. So Yeah, it really is. And, and these three teams built so differently. It'll be fun to watch whether the high-flying Capitals offense, that Pittsburgh's mitt of grit and skill, or Columbus built on their back end will make a run at the Stanley Cup. We expect one of these teams certainly to get there, as I still chat with Eric Roberts on the Money Mitch Effect. I, I want to spend some time talking about some individual performances. Sidney Crosby, Eric, we keep singing his praises. That's 40 goals now on the season. And I think this year, more than any, he's doing more, but it doesn't feel like he has to, he has to be the focal point of the offense. I watch Crosby play, and I see a guy, Eric, that's figured it out. We've been singing his praises all year. But I think this might be the most complete Crosby season, if that makes sense, that I've seen in his career. No, oh, yeah, yeah, I understand that. Um, he's, yeah, he's definitely, his game has developed, you know, into a full, he's everywhere on the ice, you know. He's always where he needs to be. He's, he's on the defensive side. He's playing against those, his best players night in, night out. And he's still, he's 
just an offensive juggernaut. You know, he's, he has six goals, ten points in his last five games. He's just, night in, night out, he's an influence on the on the ice. And he's no, even when he's not on the score sheet, which is rare, he's still making an influence, you know, breaking up big plays, you know, just always out there in the crunch time. And it's it's funny because, you know, it doesn't look like he's slowing down. It still looks like he's getting better. And it's, it's, it's crazy to see, honestly. It is. He still he still hasn't turned thirty yet. I I think a lot of players are kind of waiting for that. But he's been a beast, and again, still near and near the top of the scoring lead race with McDavid. But there's another guy we need to talk about, and it's been a great year for NHL elites, especially at that forward position. But Brad Marchand, Eric, has had the most goals. I think he's up to about twenty nine. He scored two last night since the new year. Marchand's been a beast, and. You know, a lot of things make sense in this league. You expect a guy with the skill of Crosby or the speed of McDavid, but Marchant's doing it a different way, just a tough-nosed player. This might be the most physically impressive thing I've seen all season, what Brad Marchant's doing for the Bruins. Yeah, he's really he's really turned it on here in the second half of the season. And like you said, it's a different type of player with the success. He doesn't he has his highlight real goals sprinkled in throughout the throughout the season, but he's always he's getting those goals in the paint on the crease in tight on goalies and you know for a guy his stature he's you know the little ball i hate because he's, he's a tiny guy and he's real gritty in the corners but he's he's running the lamp on, on a nightly basis in boston you know they've they've been surging because of his play and you know without him i don't know if they're back in the playoff race that firing hasn't looked fortunate or as successful without his uptick in uh contribution since you know since the new year yeah, they definitely need it, too. I mean, they, they've needed him and his spark. They lost a lot of toughness in the last couple of years, but what Marchand's doing uh, is truly remarkable given where the NHL is going. You think speed kills, speed's everything. Well, it's very important, but there's still a role in the game for Brad Marchand. And I want to, before we get to the, the final topic, the awards races, I want to look at the bottom of that Eastern Conference playoff picture. We know the Rangers are in as a wildcard team and a potential sleeper, but... You have Toronto right now with 81 points. They're only a point back with the game in hand of the Bruins at 82 in the Atlantic Division there. But the Islanders are three out, and Tampa Bay, who just won't die, even after trading away some players, continues to fight. you think there'll be a lot of drama at the bottom of the Eastern Conference playoff picture in the final couple games? Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, I think we already got a taste of it um, last night with the Bruins and the, the Maple Leafs squaring off. It had a, it had a playoff-type atmosphere, I think. You know, with those three teams, the Bruins, the Maple Leafs, and the Islanders, they all know how important each each two points are every night throughout the rest of the season, especially when they face off against each other. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a four-point swing, possibly, if you win in regulation. So the the Eastern Conference is definitely going to be a photo finish, I think, here for the, the last, you know, the last two spots in the Atlantic and the final wild card. Yeah, we really, I mean, we I can't say enough how, Impressed I am with John Tavares and that Islanders team for not quitting. But in the back of our minds, and I know you agree with me on this one, we want to see Austin Matthews in the playoffs. Like, that is something that I think the entire league is looking forward to. Oh, yeah, definitely. Imagine, you know, Austin Matthews and the Maple Leafs going against Ovechkin and the Capitals in the opening round of the playoffs. You know, that's going to be some some high-flying, good offensive hockey, you know. Yeah, and uh, you know Marner as well. Toronto's been been one of the most impressive stories of the season with what they've been able to do, and I think it, it bodes well. You, you always want to see these guys get a taste of playoff action early and hope it builds to something longer. 
Well, Eric, before I let you go, I do want to go over the awards races. There's only, you know, 10 or so games left for these teams. We're getting down to the nitty-gritty. And there's the big four. There's MVP. There's Norris Trophy for defense. There's Vesna and Rookie of the Year. And I'm looking at those awards, and I'll start with Norris. I thought it was a slam-dunk case for Brett Burns. He hasn't really scored that much in recent memory. Do you think Burns is going to still win the Norris, or is that in danger now? He should have a shoe in for it already, you know, unless there's a big uh, big burst here by somebody else. Cause he was just such a big focal point for the Sharks and for the league for such a, a large chunk of the season. I think it's going to be hard for the voters to really forget that. So I think Brent Burns should have it. If not locked up, he should be a, a, a close, you know, sure bet here. Yeah, I wanted to bring that up first because that was the one we thought we could just write off. And, and I still do think Burns is going to win it, but... Another thing, too, to point out is that there isn't really that dominant contender. Last year, Dowdy played such a big role for the Kings on a playoff team. Carlson's still scoring, but you're still, you know, you're not sure defensively with him. I think it's Burns' uh, award to lose. And I'll let you kind of give your picks for the other three, Vesna, Rookie of the Year, and MVP. I think MVP might be as tough as possible, but who do you have winning the other three awards? Yeah, so for the Vezina, you know, I, I think it's a, a two-horse race, you know, probably with uh, Bobrovsky in Columbus or Holtby in Washington. I'd probably give the edge to Bobrovsky because just, you know, what he's done in Columbus and how that organization has, you know, slipped completely. You know, they're, had, they're in the hunt for the President's Trophy for home ice throughout the playoffs. And, you know, Bobrovsky is probably one of the biggest factors in that with his play in that he anchored them through that, massive uh, winning streak this season. Um, so I think it's Bobrovsky's trophy, you know, in Vezina with Colby, um, you know, a close second. You know, he is playing great in Washington like he has in recent memory, but I think the Vezina will go to Bobrovsky. For the Colder, it's, I think Austin Matthews, you know, is probably the sexy pick because, you know, he's in Toronto, what they're doing in Toronto, but I think it's Patrick Lina, you know, he's, he's an offensive powerhouse. He's so young. He has 33 goals as a rookie in, in um, 64 games played. It's just he he might, he might get kind of left behind, you know, in Winnipeg because he's in Winnipeg. He's not on the Maple Leafs, and it takes a highlight reel goal for him that you know to get kind of on the highlight reel. But I think it's uh, Patrick Laine's uh, trophy. An MVP. Yeah, and then the the heart. Yeah, like you said, that's probably the hardest one to to figure out because you know you have Cosby, you have Marshawn, you have a handful of other players that might even, you know, get a handful of votes here and there. But I think what it comes down to, I mean, it's probably going to end up in Crosby's hand again, just because, you know, he is Crosby, what he does for the league, what he does for the Penguins. But I wouldn't be surprised if Marshawn, you know, is a lot closer than most think, just because what he's doing for the Bruins is so is going to be so fresh on everybody's mind once it's time to vote. So I would, honestly, I think I'm going to give Marshawn the, the edge here, wow. just because you know, of the timing of his surge and what he, and where the state of the Bruins were once his, his uptick and contribution kind of pushed him to the, especially if they make the playoff series at the end. Yeah, no, that's not, that's not a bad pick. I, I agree with you on Bobrovsky. I would go Matthews over Laine. I mean, that is just a tough choice. I think Matthews is going to get the bump there. And I do like Crosby to win, but those are the finalists. I think Crosby, McDavid, Marchand, Marchand's, Probably going to finish second at this rate. I, I think it's a tough a tough field this year. I just think what Crosby's doing on a team that has 99 points, I don't think that's going to be taken lightly. Well, 
Eric, thanks again for, for joining the show. Uh, and before I let you go, how's the bracket doing? Just got to ask you that. It's all right. You know, I got three of my final four in still. I have Arizona winning it all. Yeah, but no, it's all right. It's still intact. I'm doing better than most, so that's, that's all I ask for. <laughs> yeah, no, that's all you can't ask nowhere for. Near, nowhere, near a, yeah, nowhere near a perfect bracket. That was done in the first couple games, but you know, well, well, still intact. Well, you still got your champion alive. That's all that matters. And uh, if, that, if this doesn't work out... You can still throw out some hockey picks because I know you had some success with that over the weekend. Oh yeah, as well. man, I've, I've been on a little bit of a tear here with those. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Eric Roberts, thanks again for joining the show. Yeah, no problem, man. Thanks for having me. That's going to do it for the Money Mitch Effect. Hope you enjoyed the show. Thanks again to Kent Brown and Eric Roberts. For taking time, hop on a Skype call. Really appreciate that. And I want to hope everyone out there, I want to wish everyone out there is doing good in the bracket stuff. Because I know how that is sometimes, especially after the first weekend. I wasn't completely busted on my bracket this year, but I have been in the past. So I know how you're doing. It's cool. We'll get through this together. There's going to be one more show this week. We're going to do a special interview, and I don't want to give that away just yet. I'm hoping to record it on Wednesday and, and air it on Thursday. But you're going to want to hear it. Somebody doing very well in the sports industry. And remember next week, more hockey, more basketball. We might even look ahead at football. We have the draft coming up. There's a lot to discuss, and I thank you for that. Also, tennis, too. Roger Federer, Indian Welsh champion. How did I almost forget that? He wins the men's title, another title for Fed. And Elena Vesnina wins the women's. That's it. That's the show. Follow me on Twitter, MoneyMitchM21. Listen, subscribe on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Google Play. I'll see you next time. I'm Mitch Michaels. This was The Money Mitch Effect.